You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. All right. Well, welcome everyone to Real Investor Radio. I'm back with Jack Bevere. Jack, how are you today? Doing great, man. Good morning. Great to see you. I'm Craig Fuhr, and we're going to introduce our guest in just one second. Uh, Jack, we were talking earlier in uh, January, I believe it was, about software that uh, the Dominion Group has used to scale over time. And I'm so excited to talk today with uh, our guests coming on because uh, we're going to dive deep into data. And uh, but but talk, uh, I would I would call I would just say to folks who are listening to the show haven't had a chance yet to check out some of all the episodes. I would go back to the episode where uh, Jack and I were talking about various types of software that uh, Dominion has used over the years, Jack, to grow the business, to get better, to scale. Um, so yeah, speak to that for a second. Yeah, sure. Um, so we've been, you know, I, I always have tried to like dive really deep into whatever, you know, into anything that we're doing <clears throat> from a a data point of view from a software point of view always trying to use the best tools and products that were available so i've always kind of you know add, added myself to every newsletter and clicked on every housing wire link to hear about the new product announcement and um and i think that's been a really big help for us so early in one of the things that i got really into uh as was probably in like the early 2010s uh, the national assessor and recorder data for public records, everything started to go online, right? Like yep. before that, you could go to your, you may, maybe your your state had like a, a website where you could look up public records data, but they started to scan in everything uh, where you could actually search documents in, a, in most states. And then it's just every year been incrementally improved. And out of that kind of, out of that period of time, uh, there was really three companies that uh, it was Black Knight, CoreLogic, and um, well, now it's Atom that has the third license, or that, that are really the three data pro providers for the the assessor and recorder data nationally. And mm -hmm. they've got this oligopoly, right? That they're those three companies are the source data if you want to get <clears throat> all of the real estate data put together. And as Data science became more and more popular. Uh, those more and more companies kind of started to realize the power that having the access to all of that data, you know, could uh, could could offer. Right. And that idea really uh, attracted my attention from an, from an early stage. So one of the first things we did was I was like, "Hey, I you know we we wanted to lend money to fix and flip investors." And so I want to see every time that there's a flip and I called up the data providers and those two, it was data, it was Black Knight and CoreLogic at the time. And they, they didn't know it. You know, they, they thought I was, I was speaking Greek as far as they were say they're, I'm sure they were excited to hear from you. Yeah, they, they didn't. They, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was tiny, right? Like I wasn't a major mortgage company. They didn't do small licenses. They certainly didn't do custom queries. If they did, it was like, hey, we'll charge you hundreds of thousands of dollars to even like touch our database. So that wasn't going to fly. And I found this company, LandVision, which I'm hoping to get on as a guest. They're, it's a really cool data science company. And they were kind of just small enough that they'd write a query for me. So I said, hey, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wa I, want, to, um, I want you to 
tell me every time that a, an entity buys a property and then resells it, I just chose an arbitrary time frame of within 12 month period. And the difference between the purchase price and the sale price of that property is at least is at least $60,000. Because I wanted to draw the distinction between wholesales and flips, which right. even today, the uh, the Adam data doesn't draw that distinction. When they give the flipper report, they're including all the wholesaler data in there. They just say like if a property was sold, you know, bought and then resold, even if it was for ten thousand dollars more, they call that a flip. I'm like, well, that's yeah. Completely, and so a, you had to like, thing. so you had to like Frankenstein together uh, a list based on was it purchased in January and then sold in March? Did it was it purchased for a hundred thousand dollars and then sold for two fifty? And from that you were able to surmise, yeah, that was probably a flip. Yeah, like I was, I was compiling it manually myself back in 2012, 13. And you know, I was spending a lot of time doing it, but it was a super valuable list, right? Like it's, it's everyone I wanted to talk to. It's everyone that I, you know, that I thought was you know, really interesting. That was cool, right? Yeah. Um, and so I got LandVision to, to cut me that query. And, uh, and then so we started sending that list back in 2014. And that's like, Frankly, like the one of the main ways that we grew ten years ago was through that specific use of unique data. I'm giving you a very long preamble, but I promise there's a point here somewhere. Um, so it was like that, that that specific use of of like you know targeted data became to me an incredibly low cost of acquisition of a customer. Right? Oh, like yeah. I was then able to send direct mail to flippers before anyone was. And we had a super low cost of acquisition of a customer doing that. Well, that and, was when you're that was when you were still working an hourly wage too, Jack. That was pretty low. That's so, true. You know, like I still am. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I just fell in love. Like with that experiment, like I was like, it was an idea. And then I went and found the company to write the query for us. It wasn't cheap, but it was, oh my God, so worth it. So that valuable. like I just fell in love with the idea of how like, you know, applying ideas to this data set could produce incredibly high returns on investment um, and really kind of like, you know, ramp up, <laughs> you know, the, you know, make your marketing like highly, highly effective, highly profitable. Right. And so Jack, uh, at the time, at the time, were you still um, looking for something that was very local? Um, was I was this well, or, yeah, so I was doing it myself in Maryland, but then when we when when, the, when we as a lending company started to lend outside of Maryland, some states didn't have data that was quite as good as Maryland. I didn't want to learn have to learn all these new databases. I was just frankly spending a ton of energy and time um, just cutting these lists on nights and weekends myself because they were worth it, but they yeah. were like very labor intensive to do that. So I tried to find I started I started like trying to explore the data science space and figure out like which companies were were uh, you know really kind of early movers in yeah. in that space, and so I went to a mastermind and uh, I went to a mastermind and you know was you know would mention some of these ideas and I met uh, I met Chris Chris Richter who is the one of the founders of Audantic works with Eli and. He was the first guy who I started like when I started talking to him at the bar about data stuff, like listening to him talk. I'm like, this guy freaking gets it. Like, like we, we were two nerds in a pod, right? And we just talked about data science. And like, he was way more technically, he was way ahead of me from, from a technical point of view. And I thought it was just the coolest thing ever. Way but ahead of his like, time the, as well. Way ahead of his yeah, time. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. Way ahead of his time. And, but I was like the business guy who he was just like, yeah, exactly. I don't understand why all these knuckleheads don't get it. Like, yes, like clearly, you know, there's clearly a use case here, right? Like, yeah, tell me I'm not taking crazy pills. And, uh, so we really hit it off. And so we've been, uh, we've been working with Audantic. That super long preamble is to tell you how, you know, wh why I think this is so cool. Why I think this is such a high value add for our listeners is that, uh, we've been working with Audantic since then. And, uh, following the company, watching their development of a, and now a lot of different products. It's almost become, they've also got now like kind of a software platform to help you really, uh, you know, a really business intelligence tool, um, which I think is just incredible. And so we'll dig into all that stuff, but wanted to give the preamble as to why we thought, you know, why we, I was so excited to get uh, Eli from Audantic on the, uh, the podcast today. So thanks. Well, Eli, welcome to the show. That was a long preamble indeed. I, you know, I was, uh, but Jack knows. <laughs> Just having some fun here, Jack. Um, Eli, welcome to the show. Eli Fisher, go ahead and introduce yourself uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about the company and we'll jump in. Absolutely, guys. Well, well, thank you, Craig and Jack. Appreciate you guys. And thank you for the kind words, uh, Jack. Um, I'm Eli Fisher. I oversee uh, licensing here at Audantic. A uh, little bit about me. I've uh, been in the tech space 20 years. Uh, a lot of startup battles here. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of uh, what I do. Um, my original background, I, I come from cattle ranch and family. So, um, you know, growing up in Montana, um, I learned a, a quick lesson here during calving season. If you work around cows, you end up smelling like cow. And so I did not want to be a rancher. So I wanted to do anything other than that. And so um, I started out my career in the medical industry, uh, you know, basically uh, going in, working with orthopedic surgeons, going in, covering case. And it, the ironic part about it is, is, you know, I look at this industry, a lot of fix and flip guys we work with, um, the surgeons that I worked with basically called it glorified carpentry because, you know, a lot of the tools that we used to build a house, we used to fix people. There's awls, nails. It's just a different application, but it's the same, you know, mechanical concepts. And so um, after I left the medical industry, I was part of a startup in Kansas City, and then I moved back out here to Washington. I've known Chris for over 20 years. And, you know, at the time I moved back out here, Chris had said, hey, you know, I, I've built this company right here. Um, I'm looking to probably scale out the sales function. You've been in sales your whole life. Um, you love data. Um, why don't you come be a part of it? And uh, I joined the company a little over five years ago. And wow. then so when we look at what Audantic does today, you know, we try and make data actionable for people. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of data that's out there and it, it's highly commoditized in that I like to let investors know that everybody pretty much has access to the same data. You know, if you ever see a guy on YouTube talking about, you know, the secret data, the special data, generally that lives yes. in the corner with the leprechaun and unicorn, it doesn't exist. You know, and so if everybody really has access to the same data, that does not mean you know how to make that data actionable. And that's where we really come in and fill the gap of saying, look, you know, in any given market, there are only so many properties that are actually going to trade off market to an investor. Here's how you focus on who those best people are. So we really look at it from a revenue optimization standpoint for not only the marketing aspect, but also the internal revenue funnel. Because one of the curious things that we see is that a majority of loss that occurs within any customer's revenue funnel generally happens within the follow-up stages. And we can actually quantify that so that they can start converting at a higher level 
without even spending any more money. It's just asking a better question relative to the data that they have. Yeah, you know, I I, I can't wait to talk more about uh, the approach and how you guys um, target and, and use predictive modeling. But um, one of the things that uh, that every investor at Jack, either you know, young, old, experienced, not experienced, obviously our podcast is geared towards advanced investors. But we all need data, and there's no lack of it, no lack of providers out there now, Jack. You know, it's. Um, you know, I remember uh, when I used to go out to the Register of Wills site in Maryland, Jack, and it's just a big long list that comes out. Uh, one, actually, the list is updated, I think, daily, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But there's no way to download that data, and so I went out and I found a really smart VA, I think, in India. And I paid him to write me a macro. Did I ever tell you this, Jack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I paid this. Him to, paid him to write me this killer macro that would log into the, into the Register of Wills site, go to uh, Baltimore County, let's say, download all of that data, Eli, and it would put it perfectly formatted into a spreadsheet for me that I could then go send to like a Go Big Printing or something like that to print off my letters for him. And it was seamless. I mean, it was perfect. The problem with it was, Eli, is that it was a, so I would maybe I would do several counties in Maryland, uh, include and then include Baltimore City as well. And so, you know, per month there might be, I don't know how many people die, you know, so it was it, it was uh, probably like 700, you know, say five to 700 letters a month that I, that I would send out. And as you know, it's a very profitable list for many people, probate marketing. Everyone does it now, right? Mm -hmm. um, back then, not so many. However, what I learned along the way was, geez, there's just a lot of people that there's just a lot of uh, uh, folks who there's, there's no house as part of the estate. And then a lot of these people just aren't going to sell to me. And um, I'm all for shotgun marketing and throwing as much stuff up against the wall as I can. And back then it was very inexpensive to do. But um, yeah, let's, I would love to talk about a, a much more targeted approach for better investors. And I'm sure that's what Audantic is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Craig, you, you bring up a lot of great points. And so, you know, if we think about kind of the, the life cycle of how most investors approach data, you know, typically what I will see is people will start off with niche lists. And by niche, what I mean is they'll go and they'll pull, like, to your point, the probate list or, you know, affidavit of death. You know, there's a cute term out there now, pre-probate. That's the one thing I do see in this industry is there's a lot of made up terms. Is that like I'm about what... to die, but I'm not sure I'm dying yet? I'm, I'm about... <laughs> I, I think the, the intimation just... there is that it's it's basically it's like, you know, before the probate process has started, but it's yeah, a made up term. It's like, I don't know what that means. Affidavit of death is actually a defined thing. And so, you know, you have these made up terms, but when we look at a lot of these niche categories, whether it be pre-foreclosure, what have you, that data is pretty good for the most part because you know the inherent motivation of the individual. You know, if you see somebody that's in a pre-foreclosure situation, the government says you're moving, you are probably moving. Now, the downside of that is, is when you actually look at a distribution of product that trades off market to investors, those niche categories only make up a very, very small percentage because to your point, there's not necessarily a lot of it, okay? And then that challenge is then compounded by the fact of that everybody and their dog, the second something gets published to the public notice stage, it's the equivalent of shooting a flare gun off in the sky and say, hey, hey, investor, investor, come talk to me. 
And so usually it's the first person to engage that's going to win that deal. And so if you think about it, it becomes very, very hard to have a scalable, repeatable model only relying on that data. And so then you kind of look at kind of the, the next step, the evolution that we would see people do. And mm -hmm. this is where people started stacking data. And on the surface, it makes sense. It's not a bad approach either. So you will see people go to, you know, the batches, the prop streams, the, the atoms of the world. And it, it's pretty similar as to what people pull. They'll pull the high equity list. They'll stack it against absentee. And then they'll layer on a couple of other things. And that's not a bad approach either. You will certainly get deals that way. But it becomes problematic because you're making some universal assumptions. You're assuming that because this individual has equity and because this individual also is an absentee owner, that that is a good target. Sure. And sure, in some cases, that person will sell to an investor. But the vast majority of those individuals will never, ever sell to an investor. And so when you consider that, there's this inherent waste of all these investors are targeting the same people because they're using essentially the same stack. And they're mm -hmm. just basically throwing money after it over and over again to people that will never sell to them. And it's highly inefficient. Sure. And that's where we really step in to try and solve that problem by using predictive models to indicate who has the highest likelihood to transact off market to an investor, but also the class of investor as well. Yeah, I, I think that's, you mentioned class. I truly think that's the class of your product. And so maybe you can just uh, dive in about predictive modeling at this point, exactly what it is and, and how you all use it. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about what do we do, you know, everybody and their dog ever since they learned to play a chat GPT is an AI expert. Um, we've been doing... <laughs> predictive modeling for the last eight years. And if you really want to boil it down as to what it is we do, we just do math at scale. We do large scale statistical analysis. And so what is our predictive modeling, which is a type of AI, what does it actually do? Well, every day we monitor, ingest, clean, and standardize and house every single real estate transaction across the country. And really, what does the algorithm do? Well, it looks at, say, in a specific area, here's all the people that traded on market. Here's all the people that traded to an investor. And then the data, basically, the algorithm is looking and saying, okay, those people that have historically sold to an investor, what do they look like from a persona standpoint? What does the product specifically look like? And then through large-scale statistical analysis, or often what we refer to as backtesting, we basically are able to say, okay, these are the individuals based on the historic performance in any given market that have the highest likelihood based on the person and the product to sell off market at a discount to a specific class of investor. And when hey, I Eli, talk can about, I, yeah, can I, let me interrupt you real quick because I, I want to. You, you get that was a there's a ton right, yes. in that in that thirty seconds right there. Yeah, and and I want to really want to. Uh, labor labor the point a bit because it's where people sometimes miss that this is so interesting. We're all normal, like, you know, just normal, right? You know, normal investors. We're all coming. We generally come to the space with this hypothesis that people who are going to sell to investors at a discount or who have, you know, who have problems that we have an opportunity to solve, right? A reason for us to get a deal, right? On the property itself that there's some thesis behind that distress. And then we go look for the indicators of that distress. And that's smart, right? Like that's better than just, you know, 
knocking on door, you know, knocking on was, random doors I was or about like to say the same exact thing, blasting an entire zip code. Like it's not a bad place to start. But the problem is that every, now everyone's doing it, right? Like in, in back in 2013, 14, that was good enough. But by 2017, 18, that was no longer good enough, right? Like everyone's doing that. And now in the, market, you know, the market's gotten super saturated from that point where, as you pointed out, there's no special list. There's no special like corner of public records that people can't find. So there's, all, like, there's no such thing as a... As as the market is more efficient than it ever has been before, there's no such thing as getting a a an, a, a single look at a deal, right? Like you're one of four appointments, best case scenario, generally, even when you're se- sending direct mail, um, uh, particularly on these on these lists, um, on the on these lists where where people are looking for indicators of distress. So we're always looking for the indicators of distress, and then hoping that there's a deal that's somewhere in there. What you guys are doing is starting from the other end. You're saying, let's go look at everyone who sold to an investor last month. And so these are deals that we're not going to go get, right? Like generally, this is stuff that I'm not even paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Normal investors not even paying attention to. Let me see everybody who sold to an investor and that the price that we... And we think that based off of an AVM, an automated valuation model that that price looks cheap, right? Like looks low, looks lower than what that, you know, it looks like that house needs some work. Probably, you know, it's a $100,000 sale in a 225 neighborhood. And so rather than, and, and let's go find out what the people who are selling to investors, where they are, who they are. Mm-hmm. And so you guys are adding all these other lists, all these other uh, um, indicators that are non-distressed necessarily indicators, right? They're they're just they're just demographic, psychographic, you know, uh, uh, you know, lists. You know, that, that there's you know, there's the, the whole the data industry is a is a is a whole thing, right? Like, um, you can get lists of people, magazines that people buy, mm-hmm. all, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so you guys are laying on those kind of things to look for to look for other markers in the probable sellers category and then saying, okay, here's what different categories of probable sellers are. Let's now apply those same filters to everyone who still owns property. And let's go try to find people who may not be on a pre-foreclosure list. No one's, you know, there's no affidavit of death. There's no like estate open. There's no recent non-consideration transfer. And but those people get put on your list so that hopefully we as an investor are now spending our marketing dollars on a a warmer list that is probably also less that, that is hopefully also less competitive because it doesn't necessarily have those classic distress indicators attached to it and so you're then more likely the the, the thesis is we are then more likely to get a less competitive situation um to get to get a less competitive situation and that we are honing our marketing dollars in on a smaller subset so that we can hit that list harder. Uh, and that was something that really took me a second to like wrap my brain around is like, the point is to fill, you know, there's, you know, you've got a million people in a particular Metro. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a hundred thousand that, you know, that are high equity and, you know, that, that would, that would fall into like, any, you know, some classic list um, criteria. But you guys are going to narrow it down to fifteen or twenty thousand, and we should hit that three times as hard, right? Uh, and we'll, as a result, have a higher conversion rate on our marketing dollar 
um, because we're we've narrowed the list down. We think we're doing something. We think that there's something intelligent about our list that other people are missing, and we're spending more money on those less competitive uh, but still eligible leads. Uh, and to me, and, and that's and that's the thesis is that you know even after uh, even after paying for this service, that there that, that our return on our marketing dollar is going to be better than if we had just cut all cut a list on batch, cut a list on prop stream. Yeah, fair. Did I, mean, I, did I summarize yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I if, think it, he, I, one thing yeah, I would but, just say to that is everyone has access, Eli. To uh, you know, Jack was just saying back in two thousand twelve, you could easily find the access of sales data. Uh, you know, this house should be worth this, but it it it, it sold for this, and that's the easy stuff. That that this there's a there's some sort of indicator of distress. I think what what we what I'm most interested in is how do you guys go back and look at sort of all of that data and then layer on additional variables that show motivation. Yeah. So I think when when you look specifically at what what the algorithm is doing. Now I'll give you a case study here. So there's a property that was in Richmond, Virginia, and you go back to 2021. And essentially the algorithm identifies this target and says, hey, this guy here, there's something going on in his life. He's gonna sell to an investor. Now at that snapshot in time, there's no deed transfers. The property is owner occupied. There's no liens against him. There's no pre-foreclosure file. There is nothing on the surface other than the fact that this property has equity that would tell an investor to go after it. And yet the algorithm says, hey, go after this guy. And it classified it as the highest projected ROI target in that area. So how does it do that? Well, when we look at what the algorithm is doing, it's going in and it's looking at all the people that have historically sold to an investor. And to Jack's point, we're looking at the demographics and socioeconomic standards of these individuals. Mm -hmm. Because as much as I would love to tell you that, you know, people wake up and say, oh, you know what? Yeah, Craig Jack, today I thought I would be a pre-foreclosure. I just arbitrarily made that decision. Unfortunately, that's not the case, right? If you think about it, that is the end state that this person has wound up in, meaning they had to go through a lot of things in their life to get to that point. Mm -hmm. So really what the algorithm is doing is it's looking for those underlying markers that are going on in that person's life that says, hey, this individual has a high likelihood to sell to an investor based on the historic precedent of these other individuals that have gone through similar life scenarios that ultimately sell to an investor. So if you really want to look at it from an overly simplistic standpoint, let's just say you have two individuals that own a property. And let's talk about these individuals, okay? So you got individual A. Well, what does this person do for a living? Well, individual A is a CPA. You know, what does his Friday night look like? Well, he typically comes home on a Friday night He's opening up a bottle of Woodford Reserve Double Oak. He's Hold turning on. on CNBC, and he's watching Kramer scream about the about the market on Mad Money. That's Individual A who owns a house, right? Now compare that to Individual B here. What does this guy do for a living? Well, this guy hangs sheetrock for fourteen hours a day. What does his Friday night look like? Well, his habits are basically he stops off at Seven Eleven, picking up a couple of tall boys, pack of smokes. He doesn't have a 401k or multiple IRAs like Mr. CPA over here. So what does his retirement planning look like? Well, he's buying scratch-off tickets and Powerball because let's be honest, man, somebody's got to win, right? And then his evening looks like this. He goes home and he's watching TMZ and pro wrestling. One of those individuals stands a significantly higher chance of selling off-market at a discount to an investor. 
And so when we talk about the demographics and socioeconomic data that we look at, that is the type of data that we ingest. Sometimes it's referred to as the creepy data. But the reality of it is, is that that type of data is just a commodity these days. Um, anybody can go out and buy that, as scary as it sounds. Hmm. The key here is gleaning statistical significance from that data, because you can have all of that data and you can make some very, very bad assumptions. And that's why what the algorithm is doing is it is running simulations at scale to say, OK, here's all these different factors. Here are the people that have historically sold. We're going to look at those factors and then almost build a lookalike audience in Baltimore and say, OK, based on the historic precedent, here are all the individuals that meet that criteria that are not in those stages that we look at historically from like, you know, a pre foreclosure and affidavit of debt. We may only see that they have, you know, high equity, but we know that they will eventually wind up at that point. And so the competitive advantages we can give to our clients and say, hey, look, based upon the data, you really need to focus on this specific group of targets. To Jack's point, maybe it's 20,000, but it's the 20,000 best that have the highest likelihood to sell off market at discount. So as we bring that full circle, I shared with you that case study from Virginia, where the algorithm identified that individual had no markers except for the fact that had high equity, yet the algorithm knew. Well, if you play that guy's story out, what happened is eventually he did go into pre-foreclosure. And then we saw an investor pick up the property at 50 cents on the dollar, slaps it on the MLS after doing a little paint and carpet, and ripped 137K in under two months. So that is what the goal of the algorithm is doing, is it's identifying those people before they've hit those known distressor stages that everybody and their dog looks for, but it can also quantify, and we call this in statistics, front-loading of a data set, meaning we put the very, very best people that have the highest potential yield in the front of the data set so that not only can the client focus on the best available target, but also the people that will yield the most of a return. Brilliant. So with the availability of data these days, um, we can just go off on this tangent for a little bit. With the availability of data, uh, and I assume it's, it's, you know, it's coming down in, in price for you guys to, uh, to aggregate all this data. Um, my wonder is when will more competitors pop up to what you're doing um you know obviously it feels to me like you guys have been doing it in a while you're doing it well but i have to imagine that there's a lot of other companies out there who are saying oh you know we we know the kind of the standard sets that everybody's used how do we layer on what audantic is doing to you know provide a lower cost solution right mm -hmm. and everything becomes commoditized over time yeah I think when you look specifically as to what we do, there's a level of technical sophistication that is required to truly accomplish building predictive models. And so the reality of it is, is to actually hire data scientists and data engineers just to manage and be able to build these types of models that are truly effective, do back testing. That is a very, very special skill set. Yeah. So you look at the companies that actually service and have the ability to do that. They look at basically, let's call it what we're in, a niche vertical. And the total addressable market for them is tiny. So for people that have that skill set and ability, this isn't really on their radar because there are a lot of better 
fishing waters for them to be fishing in. So from a competitive standpoint, I think that we've done a nice job of going into a niche vertical where the people that can truly do that, they're not looking here because it it just doesn't make enough sense financially for them to go and do that. Not to say that they could not do that, but from an opportunity standpoint, they look at it and say, no, eh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense for us. And it's really important to understand when I talk about the technical ability of being able to do what it is we do, we've been very fortunate, you know, in, in our industry. And again, I go back to ever since anybody learned to play a chat GTP, everybody is an AI expert. You know, I'll give you an example. There was a, an organization about a year and a half ago that basically said, oh yeah, we do data scientists. It's like, okay, well, what are your technical bona fides? You go on to LinkedIn and their lead data scientist has a marketing degree from Southern Utah University. I'm sorry, you are not a data scientist. Just because you type that online and say you are, you are not a data scientist. That is a defined thing that requires a very specific background from an educational standpoint, training standpoint. Shout out to Southern Utah University, Jack. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. There goes that sponsorship. Yeah. (laughs) So. Hey, so Eli, what's, um, what's the, uh, you you mentioned in terms of like, you know, from a, the addressable market point of view, right? So mm-hmm. if you're a, you know, given the cost of your guys' services, there's a certain threshold, right? Where it doesn't make sense. Like if you're trying to buy three houses this year, five houses this year, yeah, they're not, they're not your target audience. What's the minimum like transaction volume from, like from, for wholesalers, flippers that, you know, for, for people looking to buy properties that where, where you see your, your, you know, what's, what's the min on, on purchases per year where you guys see that's where, that's where our sweet spot is from a customer point of view. You know, typically 50 deals and up. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it, what it comes down to is, and this may make me the most hated man in data is there's this misnomer of motivated seller. Okay. When you think about true motivation, there's only a handful of scenarios where somebody's highly, highly motivated to, you know, give, you know, give their property away. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so with that, people are always looking for like this magic bullet, this magic answer. And we don't sell magic here. I'm sorry. We don't do that. Um, So with that, to be able to act upon the data, you have to be consistent within your marketing. But on top of that, the reason that I say 50 and up is there's a lot that goes into it from a systems and operations standpoint of have you scaled your business to the point where you can actually take best-in-class data and make it actionable. You know, one of the things that we do is that we can empirically prove how well our models work because we're the only people in the industry that publish attribution, meaning, Craig, I generate a predictive data set for you in this market. After one quarter, I can show you how many deals came out of the data set. So it's not a question of, hey, does the data work? No, we publish the results. It really becomes a question of, okay, is the organization operationally efficient where they can actually act upon the data, engage it on a consistent basis, and then measure their performance. And why I harped... Oh, go ahead, Jack. Yeah, by by the way, I feel like that's an incredibly useful and interesting feature, right? Because like, we're always... Investors are always sending mail into the ether, right? We have no idea. We get certain calls. We don't get other calls. We don't know why. We don't know what happened with those other calls. We don't know if we got all the deals in the market or none of the deals in the market. Like, are we any good at this? Like, and what what you guys have is this, as you mentioned, this attribution uh, module, which 
for the list that you sent out, they'll say, Hey, here's, here's, here's the Metro, here's the Metro area that we uh, used to cut your list. And then we sent you this list and then you mailed it. And then here's all the deals that happened in that Metro area. And of the deals that happened, this percent, here's the, here's the deals that were on your list. And here's the ones that we missed. So, you know, the model will take those into consideration and further refine it and, 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 and get better, should get better each quarter, right? Because it's, there's a constant feedback loop of the deals that are happening to make the algorithm better and better. And market changes over time, right? Like maybe, you know, maybe, you know, it's a, it's a gentrifying area. So all of a sudden, like this particular neighborhood is selling to investors because everything's getting renovated over there. Mm -hmm. The, the, the algorithm doesn't know that, but the algorithm will take that into consideration and you will see more deals in that neighborhood on your list the next quarter because that's where transactions are happening to investors. So anyway, so the so you actually do see in the attribution, you'll see all the deals that happened, all the ones that were on your list, all the ones that weren't. And the, of the ones that were on your list, you'll see which ones you got and which ones everybody else got. And you'll see the name of the guy who beat you, oh, right? Wow. Like you'll you'll... You mailed that person and then you go look into your CRM and say, all right, did we get a call from this person, right? Like, did they not like our piece or was our piece not frequent? You know, like, is, there, is it something that like, was it that we didn't get, you, you can then start to track within your system. And as long as, and to Eli's point, you have to have good systems set up to use this data properly because otherwise you can't tell where along the way it broke or like where, where along the way you didn't win. But if you do have your system set up, you can tell exactly that because you'll be able to look into your CRM and say, did I get a call from this person? Did I get an appointment from this person? Did I attend an appointment for this person? Did I make an offer on this property? Was, and, and was my prop, was my offer accepted or not? And then you'll be able to, and then and then you'll be able to see, oh, look, I offered 120 and it sold to this other guy for 135. Uh, I got outbid. Wait, I made an offer on this property for 120 and it sold to this other guy for, 10, for 105. Like, what, what the hell? Like, my sales guy's not doing follow up. Like, he, got, he made a better offer and it sold somewhere else. And that happens. And that happens all the freaking time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's, and it's in, you know, generally that, that is your like indicator of lack of follow-up, right? Like the other guy just kept following up with him or was better at building rapport, right? That's a sales guy issue versus an appointment setting issue versus a, you know, a piece issue, right? Versus a, you know, a, the direct mail issue. And that attribution is super powerful because it's, you know, you're, you're always getting that, that availability of data. And frankly, it's like great from a motivation point of, point of view, because like, most investors are competitive people, I imagine. And dude, it gets my blood up, right? When I see myself yeah. losing to these other folks, especially when they're like, not all, you know, if, if, if it's not just because they outbid me, um, you know, if they outbid me, you know, ah, fine, you know, somebody chased the money and they closed, you know, good for them. Um, you know, did I offer the right price? You know, like maybe we underbid it, you know, like you can't go in there and lowball, you know, you're, you're it's still a competitive market, you know? So it helps you, it helps you constantly refine your machine um, to have this level of, 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 uh, well, of attribution. And so that's like, mm -hmm. a, I thought, I thought when you guys added that feature, I don't know what it was, four or five years ago, three, three, four years mm -hmm. ago, that was like a game changer from, investors ability to really get good at this thing and not just be sending mail into the ether and 
hope that, you know, hope that your response rate's good and hope that your sales guy is talented enough, which is what a lot of guys yeah. are just operating off of, right? Just winging it. Yeah. It, it allows the investor to ask a better question. Okay. By, by publishing the results and saying, okay, we got in front of this many deals. You know, one of the things that, that I ask investors when we're doing a consult with them before their client, I'll just ask them a real simple question. I'll say, hey, in the last 90 days, how many properties did you market to that sold to a competitor that never contacted you? Do you know? And in the time I've been doing this, not a single person has been able to answer that question. And then generally what they'll respond with is, oh, well, we converted this. And I'm like, really? Well, how do you know that that number is accurate? Because really, what if you think about what they're measuring is it's just their in-house conversion. What came in that they're seeing? They're not actually measuring what happened against the market. In the yeah. world. And so right, if, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you, you know think good? about it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah you bought exactly. some houses. Is that good? Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. That'd be like if Jack and I were stockbrokers. Let's just say this last month, we got a 10% return. Jack and I are like, man, we're good. Yeah. We're good. <laughs> but without knowing it, the market actually went up 30%. Yeah. All of a sudden, Jack and I, we're not so good. We're not so good. Yeah. You know, ignorance is bliss unless it's your own money. And so the, the point of the attribution is just, you know, it helps you ask a better question because you can say, look, I got in front of, you know, 1,200 opportunities in this quarter. How many of them actually did we engage with? Because then you start to understand, okay, well, that's how good my marketing is actually converting. But it also, it, it starts, if you think about it, there becomes a layer of accountability because if you know how many deals you actually got from with your marketing, irregardless of if marketing closed or not, your marketing guy can no longer come back to you and say, well, Craig, you know, the list was no good. The list doesn't work. It's a bad list. It's like, right. really? Right. Well, there's 1,200 opportunities here and only two people called us off that. Maybe you're not so good. Yeah. yeah. And then we look at the downstream effects of that. You know, I think, you know, people always say, well, where's the largest opportunity? And generally where I see a significant amount of loss is actually in the follow-up stages. So think about this, you know, marketing did their job, right? They got the person in. But all of a sudden, this deal that you're still marketing to sold a month and a half ago, and it actually sold for less than what you offered happens all the time. So you start to see how much actually fell out of the acquisition stage. And then it allows yeah, the operator like going. Appointment, appointments from like eight months ago. You'll see appointments yeah. from eight months ago that all of a sudden transferred last month. And you're like, what the heck? And it's like, oh, yeah, you look in the system and sales guy hasn't followed up in the past four months, right? He, he followed up for 90 days, right? He gave, he gave it the old college try and then he stopped and it transferred yeah. four months after that. And that's yeah. like a thing. It happens like, all the time. It's a thing in the industry, yeah. yeah. And you look at the notes and the acquisition guy said, well, you know, Tammy's crazy and has 17 cats and says she wants $1.2 million for uh, a $98,000 house. It's like, okay, Tammy probably is crazy and does have 17 cats, but she also sold it, her property for 45000 you know, a month and a half ago to a competitor of yours. So let's, let's, also, let's get down. Yeah. Also, it's great from like, you know, you, you look at the competitors, you see the other, you see the other active people in your market and you, it also helps you to understand like where, how, how are they beating you? Right. Like, you know, all right, I got beat, but it helps you trace how you got beat, right? Like, did we, you know, did we get the appointment there? Is their marketing better than us? Or, you know, in that, that, that they got a, they got the appointment and we didn't get the appointment. So like, maybe we need to be doing more on the outreach side. Um, and then, I mean, you know, markets are small, right? Like everyone knows like 
what their competitors are doing from like who's doing direct mail versus television versus texting versus cold calling, right? We're getting the damn texts ourselves. So you, you can start to see like which mixes, which marketing mixes are, are, are you know, if, if you're, if you're, you've got one competitor who's just kicking your butt, just rip off what they're doing, right? And rebrand it yourself. Like don't, re, you know, just reinvent the wheel. Like just go do what they're doing to give yourself a, a shot. Um, but without that, you're just like, I don't know. They're 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 doing something over there. We, you know, I don't know, but they're doing something. Um, so you this, like, this really gives you the visibility. Can you hang out with uh with us for a second episode? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I'm sure there's a lot more stuff I I, I want to dive into uh, as well as Jack. Uh, it's been a great conversation thus far. Uh, I would encourage people to uh, check out the next episode. We dive into some more stuff. Uh, with Eli Fisher from Audantic. Thanks for joining us on this one. It's Craig Fuhr with Real Investor Radio. We'll catch you on the next episode.